Well, it is great to be back to have this time with you today. It's always a privilege to be able to take the Word of God and to attempt to expound it in a way that uh, He would be honored. Uh, some of you uh, probably don't know me. I, our, our family, has been, our extended family has been coming to Chelan. I think we started, first year we were here was 1974. Yeah, ooh. And, uh, and uh, we, missed, uh, we missed, I was working on my doctoral uh, dissertation in, I think, 76. So we weren't here then, but all the other years we've always been here. We, we go other places, but we always end up here for, you know, 10 days in the state park. And it's a great time. Uh, I have a large extended family, some, uh, some uh, counting, if I count all of them, some 16 grandchildren. And we all kind of gather here, although this year we're kind of down a little bit. Uh, but it doesn't matter. We're all here, and we're going to have a great time. Uh, a little bit of back, background about myself, because most of you don't know me. Uh, I, uh, I've been on the faculty of the Master's College in Santa Clarita since, I hate to say this, since 1970. Uh, for a long time. It's the only job I've ever had as an adult. No. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm, the, I'm the vice president for academic affairs at the college. And uh, it's just, a, once again, a, been a wonderful ministry to, uh, to be there for all these years and to see God's blessing in what we do to educate and to grow spiritually uh, Christian young men and women. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, I, I'm, I'm going to uh, kind of, you want, need to bear with me. I want to read three passages to you before we actually start, but by the time we're over with, you'll understand how they fit together. So if you'd open your Bibles, first of all, to Genesis 11. Genesis 11. Okay, so we're, we're back there at uh, the very beginning uh, of nations. Uh, and I want to read to you, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, which is where basically pretty much where uh, Iran and Iraq come together in the north and settle there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen, which is like the mortar for, uh, that they would use for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over all the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see them, to see the city, and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, there are many, there are, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may, be under, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from, from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now go over to Acts, if you will, chapter 1, following, obviously, the Gospel of John. Here we have the account of the beginning of the church, which we're going to spend our time on today. All right, and I want to read to you verses 4 to 8 of chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? This is very important. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria under the uttermost parts of the earth. Now go over to Acts 2. Okay, and this will be our final reading, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, so there were Gentiles there, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Heavenly Father, I would just pray as we explore the beginnings of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit that, true, within our own lives, as we study your word today, that, you, that, you, that your spirit will make it plain to us, that we might be able to understand it so that we can give back glory to you and serve you because we love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, what we have here in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 1, we have the beginnings of the church. Now, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. We read that already. We read that already, and we see that uh, in, uh, in verse 5, all right? As John, as, as John baptized in water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so what we have here then is everything, everything that happens in Acts, all right? This is important. Everything that happens in Acts okay, is the unfolding of what was promised by our Lord back in chapter 1. Now, let me show you something so you can really understand what's going on here. The Lord had been ministering for 40 days, all right, since his resurrection. And so what the Lord is going to tell them to do upon his ascension, they are to go, in Jerusalem, to, go to Jerusalem and wait, all right? And we will see, as we read in chapter 2, that this great event of the coming of the Holy Spirit happens on the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover, all right? 50 days after the Passover. 
Now we also see, and I'll come back to that in a minute, what we also see in Acts chapter 1, and this is really important, as we see what the Lord is asking them to do under the power of the Holy Spirit, which is to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth. But the disciples at this point in Acts chapter 1 don't get it. Now let me show you. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so in spite of all of our Lord's teaching at this point, what the disciples were expecting, they were looking for, first of all, a political kingdom, a kingdom that would come and throw out the Romans. Secondly, they were looking for an ethnically restricted kingdom, a kingdom basically of Israelites. And then thirdly, they were looking for a geographically restricted kingdom centered around Jerusalem. So my point simply is, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, even after Jesus had spent 30 years teaching them, and now 40 years of intensive seminary, they still didn't get it. They were expecting Israel to be restored. Just like today, if you were to go to Jerusalem... And you were to go to the eastern wall, the western wall, excuse me. In, is, in Jerusalem today, on any given day, you will, see, you will see the Orthodox Jews all in their white, all in their black coats, with their black hats on, with their, with their ringlets. And all, they will be there at the west wall reading the Torah and also praying endlessly for the return of who? The Messiah. To establish what? The kingdom again. And so Orthodox Jews today still believe this. This is what the disciples thought was going to happen because they had no clue about what was going to happen at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said before, the Feast of Pentecost, it's called Shavuot, and it's one of the seven feasts given to God by Moses during, uh, during the 40 years of wandering, Okay. And uh, so here we are at Passover. Now, I'm sorry, Pentecost. Now, what Pentecost basically did was it was a celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Okay? It was, a, it was giving of the law. And also then, it was also the time of what we call the first fruits. Now, what you have in, 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 in Israel today is you have two growing seasons. One of them, kind of, one of them is kind of in late spring... And another one is in the fall. And this is the first one, the first fruits. And that was to be an offering. When you got the first fruits, that was you were to come to the temple at Passover and you were to offer that, those first fruits, uh, as a sacrifice. Okay? And so you have then a lot of people coming in from all over Asia, from all over the Middle East, even from Turkey, coming to basically celebrate what we would call Pentecost. Now, why is Pentecost then unique to Christians? And we see that in Acts chapter 2. All right? In Acts chapter 2, we find that great event where the disciples were commanded, what they'd been commanded by our Lord to wait for. And that is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, what we see here then is that in this passage in Acts chapter 2, there are given two symbols. All right, or two marks. The first mark, okay, the first mark is that 
mark of the coming of what is called the mighty wind. Now, let me read it in verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound now, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Okay, and so the point simply is you have this, you have this great event that's taking place, this coming of this mighty wind. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. They heard, the people all in that room, they heard it, and they felt something. But it doesn't actually say, the text doesn't actually say it was a wind. But we do know this. Everybody in that room experienced something from the outside. Something came down upon them. Okay? They had not an internal experience, but they had an external experience. They felt it, they heard it, and they saw its impact. And obviously it came from heaven. And so what we're going to see transpiring here is that the Holy Spirit is now coming down with a transforming power that had never been known before in the history of the world. And so we see here what we call the first time, as, as, as our Lord calls it in chapter 1, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The first time that the Holy Spirit came. And the first time the Holy Spirit then fell on these over 100 people in this room, what you have then is what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And a better way to define it is, is when a, when a person becomes a Christian and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in their life at the time of conversion, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is when you receive the Holy Spirit. From that point on, as a Christian, you have many fillings, all right? Because the Holy Spirit in you is, is, is working out in your life what we call sanctification, the idea of growing more like Christ every single day. And we have then the fruit of the Spirit, which is given to us in Ephesians chapter 5. So what we have here then is an external event that's happening. Okay, And so to be baptized with the Spirit means to have a divine power come on you from the outside and into you. Now, this is important to understand because we don't, we don't, look, we don't work that way in our culture today. If, you, if, you've had any, if you've had any kind of secular counseling, okay, and we could be dealing with whatever issue it is, what a psychologist will always tell you is, it's what, what you have to do, you have to make interchange in your own life, okay? The default mode of our culture is to be self-centered and to look within to solve every single problem. And that's exactly the reverse of what Scripture teaches us. So the first event then was this mighty, this sound, which sounded like a mighty wind, all right? Now the second one we see in Acts Chapter 2, verse 3, and look at it. And divided tongues as of fire to them and appeared to them and rested on each of them. Okay, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, many times when God shows up, go back in the Old Testament now, when God shows up, uh, he comes in fire. You might not recall this, but the first time is in Genesis 15, when Abram, who has not been called Abraham yet, God gives him the great promise that through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay? And so to confirm that, the Lord, the God speaks to 
Abram and tells him, and this is by way a, 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 an old custom, it was carried down even through the Middle Ages, and uh, what would happen would be you would take six pairs of six animals, cut them in half, and put them on each side so there would be a path going through them. And that is the way during, uh, during, the, during the Middle Ages, okay, and back during uh, uh, the time of kings in Europe, when a vassal would make a commitment to honor that king, the vassal and the king would walk down through the aisle of these animals that was split, were split. Now, in this case, though, what's really interesting, Abram does that, but as it gets into nighttime, the birds are coming down and trying to consume the, 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 the dead flesh. But what happens is, Abram then he gets so tired he falls asleep. And in the, in the still of the night, the scriptures tell us that a blazing torch and a smoking fire pot went right down through the animals that had been split in two. And what that tells us is, and this is so wonderful, is that God made a covenant with himself to bless the seed of Abram, the sands of the sea. And that's where we come in because eventually through what happens at Pentecost, we become part of that, of that great, great nation over the centuries who have given their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. And so that's one time when fire shows up. Another time, and you know all this, another time the fire shows up is the burning bush, right? When you have literally the Shekinah glory in the burning bush. Another time, and you know this one as well, on Mount Sinai, when there was fire and wind and quaking and everything on the, up on the mount when Moses got the Ten Commandments. And then lastly, the pillar of fire. So my point simply is, God is seen many times in manifesting himself with fire, all right? So in the room, there were both apostles and other believers, and the fire fell on all of them. This is wonderful. Not just on the, on the apostles, but it also fell on everybody else who were there. Verse 9 tells us that, okay? And so all were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what happened then? Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Both Jews and proselytes, that would be Gentiles, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And so what happens here is under the power of the Holy Spirit, all these individuals begin speaking about the mighty power of God. And what I think that basically is, is, is that what they're basically talking about here is, once again, this idea of the opportunity to, 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 to explain to others what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we know from the text, again, what each heard in their own language. And here's a point that's very important. The Holy Spirit... Okay, the Holy Spirit never testifies about himself. You see, the text doesn't say that. The text said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Listen, the Holy Spirit always exalts the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit, there is no account in Scripture where the Holy Spirit exalts himself. Everything that is Spirit-filled, and this is true in our Christian lives, Everything that is spirit-filled really is an offering back to the Father and the Son. And so this is what's transpiring with the coming of the Holy Spirit. These believers now 
were speaking the gospel without inhibition. They were joyfully and fearless, and fearless, they, had, they were joyful and they were fearless in proclaiming these mighty works. Now, you see what happens though. Look at the end of verse 13. But others mocking, that is, those who were outside, said, They are filled with the new wine. So, what's going on here? They were accusing then those who were filled with the Holy Spirit of being under the influence of alcohol. Now, we know that alcohol does take away one's inhibitions. Alcohol is a depressant, and that doesn't mean that alcohol makes you depressed. Okay, what alcohol does, it depresses the part of your brain function, you know, and for that reason, you are, when you're under the influence, you are happy when you are drunk and when you're stupid. Why? Because you're less aware of reality. And therefore, you become less inhibited, which is, very, which is the idea here. Okay? Less inhibited. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, as you see in this text, though, the Holy Spirit gives you joy, but He gives it to you through intelligence. How do we know that? Because what were they rehearsing? They were rehearsing the Scriptures. They were rehearsing the mighty acts of God that they had already been taught from the Old Testament. Okay? So the second thing then that happened to them was that they had this inner wonder and joy because of what God through Christ had done. There's a third mark, okay? And the third mark of spiritual fullness was that the tongue, the tongues happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, let me be very careful here. These are not the tongues Paul talks about or writes about in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. Why? Because the difference is everybody there heard what was being said in their what? Their own what? Their own language. Okay? So there was no need for any interpretation. So on Pentecost then, those Christians that were gathered understood each other in their own language. It was an obvious miracle in verse 6. So what were they talking about? We already know what they were talking about. As we said before, the wonders or the mighty works of God. It says wonders in other translations. And so once again here, what they were referring to were the miraculous acts in the Old Testament where Israel had been delivered. Probably the most important one would have been the Exodus where the whole nation was delivered from Egypt. All right? And then obviously in the New Testament, you'd have the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection. So those are the kinds of things they would have been talking about. Now there's a fourth mark here as well, and that is spirit-filledness is, is to be obsessed with the joy of the gospel. You want, when the Holy Spirit is really controlling your life, you want to share that message. You want to share the gospel. You want to share the joy that's within you because of what Christ has done. And, and the point simply is here, that we see here, this is amazing in our text, the first presentation of the gospel was in every different language all at once. You can imagine what it must have sounded like. All right? Now, what is fascinating about this text is that Luke goes into great detail to tell us where these people all came from. They were all adult males who'd made this, this pilgrimage to celebrate Pentecost to, to Jerusalem. 
And so we have all these different groups. Now, let me read you the list, and you'll see really what you have here is every part of the known world. Okay? And they were amazed, reading in verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Eliamites. Now, these would be all in either Iran or right up on the Iranian border where Iraq is. Okay, so you've got that part, you've got that part of the known world. Really the part pretty much of the Persian Empire, if you will. Then you have Judea, but then you have Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. That'd be all from eastern Turkey all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? So then you also had Libya, Cyrene, and Cyrene was really in where Libya is today. So now you've got it going from Egypt all the way across the, the southern part of the Mediterranean Sea. You had people there from those areas. Okay? You also had them from Rome. Okay? So Latin was spoken. You then, had, you then had, as I said, you had people from the island of Crete. And then you had them even from the Arabian Peninsula. So what we see here then, which is really fascinating, is the fact that when the gospel was first preached to the world, it was preached in every language of the known world at once. An incredible miracle. Now, let me, ask, let me ask a question that was asked at this point. Why wouldn't you have expected God, through the Holy Spirit, to speak in Hebrew? Right? That was, the, that was the language of the Jews. Or, if you want to go to the modern time there, why wouldn't of the Spirit of God spoken in Greek? Because that was the basic language of the whole period. He didn't do that. He spoke in all these different languages, the Spirit did. Now, why? Well, let me give you my take on it. Language, if you study language, language is a bearer of culture. Your language comes out of your cultural context. And by a deliberate miracle then, God made sure that there was no languages and cultures that had precedence over any other in the Christian faith. Here, look, here's the point. There was a, there was a basic equality. Remember now, the apostles are there. Those who are lifted up, the 11 at this point, okay? But the point is, who received the Holy Spirit? Everybody. So there's this leveling here. There's this basic equality now that begins within the body of Christ. Now, let me give you an example to kind of uh, show you a, a, a different view. Let me, let's take Islam for a minute, okay? In Islam, I don't know if you know this or not, the Quran cannot be translated, Otherwise, if you translate the Quran into English, you really don't have the Quran anymore, according to Muslims. You have something else. All right? So as far as the Muslims are concerned, Allah speaks only what? Arabic. Okay? All the original revelation was in Arabic, and therefore, if you want to hear Allah's words, you must really hear it and read it in Arabic. It can be translated, but that's still not the word of Allah, according to Islam. Now, here's the great blessedness of this. Christianity, because of Pentecost, 
is totally different. We do believe the word of God can be translated. A Chinese translation is what? Is the word of God. Okay? So, what you see here in Islam is you see this unified culture held together by language. There is an Arabic language anywhere Islam is transcendent. Therefore, you will have what we call a unified culture. And that is not true of Christianity. Christianity is the most culturally diverse religion in the world. There is no Christian language and culture. God is not an Englishman. Christianity always, to a degree then, as well then, within every culture, critiques every culture. We, you know, we've been going through some terrible issues here in the United States, you know, of, of, the, direction in when this, of the direction in which this country is going. And we know the Bible speaks very clearly to these issues. And so what is our responsibility as a Christian then in love is to what? Make these views known, right? And so we find in our own lives that we come many times, because of what we believe about the Scriptures, we come into conflict with our what? With our culture all the time. And that's all the way through the New Testament. You see that all through the book of Acts. You see it all through Paul's epistles. All the suffering that Christians go through. You know? And that's one of the things that we have to remember. In the context of the Word of God, Christians primarily many times are called to what? Suffer because they're living contrary to their what? To their culture. Right? So that's what's going on here with, with, with Christianity and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the gospel, as I said then, doesn't steamroll over other cultures. When you become a Christian in, the, in America, you're an American Christian. Or how about in Africa? You're an African Christian. How about in Korea? You're a what? You're a Korean Christian. Why? Because we believe all those translations are what? Are the word of God and speak to those particular cultures. And so within Christianity, you have this incredible diversity. And that is all because of what? Pentecost. That's where it all starts, okay? So Christianity, in that sense, honors cultures. But the challenge then for you and, you and I is not to think that our particular Christianity is the real Christianity. We must remember that at Pentecost, God did not let the gospel go out just in one language and in one culture. Okay? So that is, that is incredibly, that is incredibly important. Okay? So, today then, the churches that are left, I'm sorry, the churches that lift up the power of the Holy Spirit, and you'll know this, are the most interracial and multicultural human institutions in the world. Now, I want to go back to Pentecost because this is so wonderful. Why did God send down the Holy Spirit then at Pentecost? Now, when was Pentecost class? When did it appear after Passover? How many days? Fifty days. Very good. The disciples had been with our Lord after the resurrection for how many days? Forty days. They went to Jerusalem for how many? Ten days. And then who appeared? The Holy Spirit appeared. All right? So, let's look at this. What is the, let me compare now Pentecost in, Pentecost in Acts with Mount Sinai in Exodus. Okay? 
Let me compare those two. Now, in both cases, God came down, didn't he? At Sinai, God came down to the mountain. How do we know he was, came down to the mountain? Because we saw the evidence of it. The fire, the smoke, the quaking, all of those things, all right? Uh, what message did Moses receive from Mount Sinai, class? Come on, the what? The Ten Commandments, right? Absolutely. But what do Christians receive at Pentecost? They receive not the Ten Commandments, they receive the gospel. They receive the gospel. And so there are monstrous differences between Mount Sinai and Pentecost. At Mount Sinai, everybody was scared to death. God spoke from the top of the mountain, and the people were afraid. So who did they ask to go up? They didn't want to go because they were afraid. And I'm going to read you a passage out of out of Deuteronomy, just to kind of give you an example of this. You don't have to turn to it, all right? Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now listen to this. Now, here's the setting. Let me tell you the setting. When, when, when Moses writes Deuteronomy, it's at the very end of his life, all right? And so what he's doing, it's kind of like Moses' last will and testament, and he's recounting the acts of Exodus, all right? Now listen to this. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly. This is Moses speaking. At the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the clouds and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, he added, no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, that's the people, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us by his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For the great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord, our God, any more, we shall die. So what was, what, were the, what was the children of Israel's response to what was going on on the mountain? They were what? They were petrified. They were absolutely, totally totally scared to death. And because of that then, who became the mediator? Moses, right? Moses became the mediator, the man on the mountain, the mediator, the bridge, if you will. And so when the people sinned, who interceded for them all the time? Moses interceded for them all the time. Then Aaron, and then eventually the priesthood with all the sacrifices. Now here's my point. Pentecost is totally different. Is there fire at both times? Yes. But think of this. At Pentecost, the fire is not on the mountain. It comes down on every single Christian. And the word that comes out of the mighty works of God is not the word of the law. It's not the word of the law. It's no longer works righteousness. It's the word of the gospel. Grace and grace alone. The exodus, the deliverance from the exodus was totally grace. Children of Israel didn't do anything to deserve to be, to, be brought out of the, to be brought out of Egypt. It was totally by the initiation and the grace of God himself. And you see, at Sinai, the people said they couldn't bear it. But when Christians heard the word of God, they wanted to hear more. Well, why? 
if you were to read the first, two, first the, the chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that we as believers have a better man on the mountain. Moses was great, but Jesus Christ is better and greater. Why? Because he is the ultimate mediator. Why? Because he wasn't just a man. He was God-man. He actually took on the form of a human being and came down and lived a totally righteous life for, for 30 years so that he could go to the cross and bear our sins and be that spotless lamb that was the sacrifice for us becoming Christians. When we sin today, Jesus doesn't, just doesn't pray for us like Moses. Jesus died for us. Matthew tells us that when he died, the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom so we could draw near to the throne of grace. The coming of the Holy Spirit, believers, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost confirms a new relationship between man and God. Access for the Christian now is immediate. Now, I know you're wondering this, maybe if you've thought back far enough. How in the world does Genesis 11 fit into this? How does Babel fit in to Acts chapter 2? Well, it does. And let me explain it to you. What happened to Babel? Because of the sin and arrogance of the people, God judged the people, separating them. How did he separate them? By what? By what? Language. At Pentecost, the curse of Babel is reversed. Now people of different lands and languages can be united by the Spirit of God. Because of the fire of God, because the fire of God's wrath came down on Jesus. Because of Pentecost, every tongue can now hear and read the Word of God and be changed by the Holy Spirit as He causes them to repent and to trust in Christ and Christ alone. You see, folks, this is why Acts 2 is so important. The world would never be the same again. And I trust this morning you feel the fire of the Holy Spirit burning within you because of what Jesus has done. Tim Keller puts it like this. <clears throat> he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. That's true with all of us. Remember this. Religion doesn't save you cannot leverage God enough by your good works. He is still holy and righteous, and the only way you can ever relate to Him is through the spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ, who suffered and died on the cross and was resurrected. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. And those of us in this room know this. If we've repented and trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit, now as He did with those first Christians in Acts chapter 2, lives within us and gives us the power to put forward the fruits of righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it convicts us.
And we thank you most of all for the gospel. For as we meditate on the gospel, we can understand the joy that we now have in our lives because your son, even obedience to you, went to the cross, despised the shame, so that we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can come into a new relationship with you. And for this, we praise you, we honor you. And Father, help us to live our lives, not because we're, we're trying to get closer to you because of our good works, but we want to serve you and honor you because of our love for you. We pray this prayer this morning in your name. Amen.